joke. And I'm going to go ahead and get started. Well, first, how's your day been? Good. I had a very chill day, actually. I didn't do too much work. Okay. Yeah. Well, good for me then. It's really, really, really nice to have you on the podcast. Like, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, you're welcome. I appreciate you asking me. All right. Hello, everyone. I am Marcibel, and this is the Marcibel Podcast. Welcome back to the Marcibel Podcast. It's a podcast about culture, cultural nomads, designed for blacks and Asians, and those who love them. I'm your host, Marcibel, Nigerian-born, U.S. educated, Korean-speaking, struggling intellectual. Today, I have a very wonderful friend with me. I just recently chatted them on Facebook and let them know, hey, I'd like to have you on the podcast, and she jumped on board. I mean, I have really, really amazing support and friends. And her name is Chingwe isn't now Origi. And she loves Jesus, she loves people, and she hates oppression. She's a PhD candidate in African and African Diaspora Studies at the University of Texas at Austin and a Woodson Fellow at the Carter G. Woodson Institute for African American and African Studies at the University of Virginia, I think that's in Charlottesville. Her dissertation project focuses on how global anti-black racism impacts Nigerians in Nigeria and the U.S. Everyone join me in welcoming Miss Origi, or like I like to call her, she will. Hello. Hello, hello. Thanks for, for coming on board. It's such a very short, I think it was just last week, right? Yeah. Thanks. Another interesting um, you know, feature about you is your Igbo. Uh, so yep. for those listening, we have three major tribes in Nigeria, and I know I'm going to get a lot of flack for this, because there are many tribes in Nigeria, but there are three major ones, okay? There's the Yoruba, there's the Igbo tribe, and there's the Hausa tribe. She belongs to the Igbo tribe. Mm-hmm. And um, even though she didn't do this, I'm going to introduce her again in the Igbo way. And <laughs> I know she was being modest about that. So <laughs> she has a master's degree, actually, people, from the University of Cambridge. Oh, yes, yes. Oh, yeah, and her thesis was on um, Raised Abroad, Racial, Ethnic, and National Identities for Children of Nigerian Immigrants I, in Britain. How did you know that? Girl! Hey! <laughs> and then she has a Bachelor's of Science and a Bachelor's of Arts in Public Health and Africana Studies from Rutgers University. Girl, you're a book smart person. I mean, I love that about you. Oh, Girl power. You. And I didn't want to say that, but I have to. I want to boast on your achievements, like, you know. Acknowledge that. So that's really, really big. So I have a lot of questions for you, like you know. Yes. But first, I want to create a context for our conversation. So I met Chingwei probably, how long ago? Was it last year or two years ago? Yeah, I think it was like two years. Yeah, it might have yeah. been two Maybe it was two years. But it was kind of like spotty. Because yeah. have, you know, <laughs> we have friends. We have these socials. Our circles kind of connect somewhere, but... We didn't even meet each other until maybe towards my last few, you know, yeah. months in Austin. And but one thing I really remember about you is your smile, which I'm really staring right now, which oh. I'm staring at right now on your Skype ID as it's like staring back at me. And then your hair. Mm-hmm. She has this glorious afro, and I did the four puff, asking, "Can I touch your hair? Can I touch your hair?" And she was so chill with it. But anyways, um, in addition to that, she's very passionate about about Africa. I mean, yeah, I mean someone studying a PhD degree in African studies and and people in the diaspora that really shows you her intent. I think you were in in London for a while on on a, on a very important panel by Chimamanda, right? 
Oh, it was the Igbo conference, and Chimamanda yeah. Skype in there as well. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I gave a paper there. I gave a talk there. Wow. Well, kudos to you. I mean, congratulations on all of your achievements and just what you're doing and studying. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. So tell us, um, um, were you born in the U.S. or w- just tell us about your immigration story? Whether it was you <laughs> born here or you you were born in Nigeria and moved here? I really don't know that much about you. So, okay, great, great, great. Um, so I was born in Trenton, New Jersey, um, and of Nigerian parents, both of them Igbo. Um, they came in the 70s and 80s and had five children, and I am number four. And wow. so, yeah, I've, I was raised in, you know, Igbo household. We would go to Igbo parties and, um, yeah, I mean, actually predominantly Igbo and Uwa, because I'm specifically Ungwa, uh, which is in Abia State, and you go to Ungwa associations, where you go to Ungwa monthly meetings, and so you're, I'm raising this, like, you know, Nigerian Igbo Ungwa um, culture environment. environment. Yeah, in, in the U.S. So, yeah. Did they have, like, a, a large density of, you know, your people in that part of New Jersey that you were? Raising. Oh yes, there's a there's so there's a lot of Igbo slash Ungwa people in all over the U.S. But New Jersey, New York, Philly, um, Texas, um, Chicago, California. Like we have like a national association where we meet every year, and so it's yeah, there's a lot of us. <laughs> That's good. So what does that mean to you? So I mean, I mean, before I even ask that question, if someone were to put a like the normal racial label on you, would you want to be addressed as an African American or an Nigerian American or just an American? Period. Um, if those were the three choices, uh, yeah. Are there more choices I'm not aware of? Uh, <laughs> I would. I mean, I would. If someone to say like, what is your most important identity? Yeah, I would actually say black. Um, before any identity, because it it, yeah. it 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 it's transnational. It's it connects Inclusive. people. Yeah. Um, yeah. And geographies. It's a political identity. It's identity of solidarity. So mm-hmm. black would be my first identity. But after that, mm, I guess, man, I guess I would say Ungwa or Ibo, because. Yes, because those were the identities that were, like, instilled in me uh, through associations, but also Nigerian, because that was the identity that my parents, you know, they created this Nigerian nationalist um, yeah. identity for me to, like, embrace. And so it's a lot. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I just, it's okay. <laughs> you did well. You did well. It wasn't, it wasn't a trick question. It was just I was really curious about that. So um, now back to your background, right? Um I can't imagine what is having that upbringing you had in a different culture, like, you know, growing up as a young kid and seeing all of that. Because I can imagine that it was a lot different from other people you were exposed to as far as, you know, school and work. What was that like growing up, living in such a very Igbo-centric, is that the right word, um, environment? Mm-hmm. Knowing that the external culture, like, whatever that means, like, people in New Jersey, that wasn't like the norm or that wasn't like the usual custom there. What were some things you would say, you know, um, stood out differently for you? Um, so I, so uh, I, I was 
partially raised in Trenton, New Jersey, which is a predominantly black area. And then we moved yes. to a predominantly white area when I was eight years old. So I can remember more so to the predominantly white area. But some things that I realized, like just I'll just give examples. One of them was I would always say, can we, cl- can you close the boot? Close the boot, close the boot. Oh, and I, yeah, and people would just look at me like, why are you saying boot? I'm like, obviously this is the boot. And I didn't realize that people don't say boot. Of course, that's a, you know, British, British English. English. Yeah. Other things, I had an uh, interesting experience. We would go to like different dances at school. So I'm yeah. coming from like a, you know, Igbo Ungwa party. And the way we dance, you know, we shake our butt and just, you know, do our <laughs> dancing and just have a good time. And so I'm using yeah. the same dances, and yeah. I went to a school party, and I was doing the same dance because, you know, it, all, it was all the same to me. I'm like, I just working before it became a thing, huh? And then you got kicked out of school? <laughs> I, I was the first one, though. Uh, <laughs> I was dancing, and, I was, and everyone was like, oh, my gosh, chillin'. Look at you. And I'm like, what? what? I said, oh, this is for my Nigerian people. This is not for my Nigerian <laughs> I got to turn it down. I got to turn it down. <laughs> so I learned that day that I probably shouldn't uh, do that there if I didn't want all that attention. <laughs> Information. All that attention on you. Now, um, would you say you have a, like growing up, would you say, I'm just assuming, would you say you have a better appreciation of that upbringing now than you did when you were growing up, or it's just about the same? So I've heard, like, various experience from my friends. I feel like I'm really different because I al- I always loved being um, Nigerian, Igbo, whatever. Oh. Like, in Spanish class, I in high school, I would literally go on the board and draw the Nigerian flag every <laughs> 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 Every single day to the point that my Spanish teacher had to create a flag, a Nigerian flag for me, so I can just post it on the board. Like, I was just, that's how much I was trained to, like, love Nigeria, celebrate Nigeria. But I think the only part was I remember being younger and wishing I had an English name. Um, Like, why did you not call me Chinua? Because people call me Chicken Wing. They call me Chinchilla. You know, like, all these, like, different nicknames. But they always have the Afro. Oh, no, actually, I I went natural um, okay. my first year, of, first year of college, I think. Okay. Yeah, so that was, that was an experience. That was quite an experience. But, yeah. Good, good. <laughs> all in all, what would you say it means to you to be, to be black, to be Igbo, and to be American? Like, what would you say those things mean to you? Um, they all intersect. Um. Mm-hmm. To be black, it means to be part of a history of resistance, um, of of beauty, of of struggle, but also of um, creation and transformation. It's just I see it part of a, a history both in Nigeria and in the U.S. So my yeah. black connects in both ways, and then to be Igbo means to it's. I see it as a the language that my parents speak, uh, and I understand, but I don't speak very well. Um, the also the cultural distinctions from being Igbo to Yoruba to Hausa, um, and also I, I see it as like also historical, like um, just different instances, like the Aba Women's Riot. That was a yeah. 
history uh, against colonization and um, learning about what is my Igbo history, what, do, what does it mean to me, um, the, uh, learning about the Biafra War. Oh, that, that's a story. Like, can I, oh, can I tell you that story? Can I go tell ahead. you? <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. So, um, so I was uh, in college, and I was reading a, reading a history book, a Nigerian history book, just because I wanted to learn more about my history. And so I'm flipping pages, and someone's like, I, I'm, I read Nigerian Biafra War, 1967-1970. And I'm, yeah. I'm going to move to the next topic. But then I was like, why does this Nigerian Biafra, what, what, and I was like, wait, my parents were born at that time. But I've yeah. never heard any of this. I call my parents, and then out of nowhere, they're telling me all types of stories of how they survived the war, you know, oh, all wow. crazy stuff. And I said, Mommy, Daddy, why did you wait 18 years for you to never tell me about this war unless I asked you a question? Oh, and this is what in the book that you read it in. If you hadn't seen it then, you probably wouldn't yeah. have known about it. You never told me. And so that really transformed just how I see myself and my identity and being Nigerian mm-hmm. and all that. Um, but yeah, it was such a it was a, such a discovery moment. Good, good. Thanks yeah. for sharing that. Um, so I know recently on Facebook you had um, put up a post. Actually, it wasn't really, you shared it on Facebook, but you wrote an article for Face to Face Africa, and it oh, was yeah. um, on Black Panther and Wakanda. And yeah. I read it. A, a lot of what I read, there were some things that stood out more than the other ones. So mm-hmm. I'm gonna read an excerpt from there that I really liked. It was, and this is it. The existence of Wakanda reveals that post-independence Africans in and outside of Africa are not exempt from from a diasporic reality of loss, longing, and resistance. Black Panther refuses ideas of a pre-modern Africa unaffected by the ravages of global white supremacy. Yet Wakanda still operates as an alternative imagined home for both black people in and outside of Africa. So when I read that, it was kind of like a, a confirmation of what I discussed with one of my other guests. And we talked about Africans and African-Americans, like the relationship between us. And would it be a fair statement to say that Black Panther could as well be that thing that triggers a cascade of connectivity or reconnectivity to African ancestors? Like a major step, I think, if I can say, that can mollify the tension between Africans and African-Americans. Like, for the first time, we could see, we could think of Wakanda as a return to motherland. And um, I try for African-Americans that are willing to connect. Would that be uh, a fair statement to make? I mean, that's, I think that's one way of looking at it. Um, mm-hmm. But I think there was something else I was, I wanted to I was trying to say in that statement. It was actually trying to get African people as well in Africa or of recent African descent to see Africa as not, to see Africa today as in need of change and and how Wakanda actually shows us that, hey, Wakanda is not the Africa we see today. How can we get there? And so getting black people everywhere to actually use Wakanda as a way in which we can all come together. And, yeah, so I think I was trying to use, yeah, unity of of our histories, using Wakanda to bring us all together so that we can imagine something anew. Do you think, um, and I know Wakanda is a fictional place, do you think we're ever going to get to that point where, when I think about Africa, 
I'm, I'm, I'm talking right now in, in splotches. When I think about Africa, like the way I want to think about Africa, I want to think of it not just for a place for people that are Africans that are currently living there, but also for those that feel connected to it, a place mm-hmm. that is welcoming, you know. Do you yeah. think we can ever get to that stage where, or to that point in time or where, you know, Africa is, I won't say revamped or upgraded, but the idea of Africa isn't just going to be a place reserved for certain people, but for mm-hmm. anyone that wants to connect to it. I think I think we can make progress toward that goal, toward that goal, but it's, we have a lot of work to do. <laughs> a lot of work. Um, so, ah, man, 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 man. Uh, <laughs> I think a lot of it is. For me, um, and this is the research that I do, is that identifying issues in Africa that is not just talking about Africans against Africans, but also talking about how uh, foreign institutions are actually uh, affecting the the change that Africa needs. And so, yeah, it's a a lot of factors that are going into it, and I'm trying trying not to get all, like, (laughs) too detailed. But it's okay. Yeah. I which we can identify the problem, but understanding that the problem is not just local, but it's also global. Yeah. 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 Okay. Now, speaking of your research, so I know you you're in the African and African diasporas um department at UT Austin, position that is looking at global anti-black racism and how that impacts Nigerians in the US and Nigeria. Um can you tell us a little bit more about that and are there any findings that you, you can share? Because this is your proprietary information, right? That you see, like, maybe if there are differences between Nigerians that are based in Nigeria and then those that are here in the U.S. Okay, yes, yes, yes. So um, a big thing with the journey to this project, I'll, I'll give, like, one story. I remember being in college, and someone came up to me, and at that time, they were like, oh, you know you're black, right? <laughs> Just straight up. Um, like, really? What you- I wonder what, I, what gives that away. <laughs> so, but the funny thing is, like, I didn't, I saw myself as a black person, but it was, it was something that was distant. It wasn't something that I really held on to. At that time, I viewed myself as Nigerian, Igbo, and all that, you know, but not really black. You know, I saw it, but I didn't, it, it wasn't something central to my identity as it is now. And then I realized a lot of people who were raised like me, this was a similar experience. And I was like, why is it that this black identity that's, you know, a label that um, is placed on us, why are we not embracing it? And what, what is the history yeah. behind it and all that? And so this was the journey to my um, research project. And so um, one of the things um, that I realized is we, we understand black and blackness as something that's created in the U.S. We don't blackness or race I should say as something yeah. occurs a process of what, what scholars say racialization or just becoming black um, as something that co- occurs in Nigeria and that's why that was why I didn't see myself as black um, yeah. although if I really dig deeper like it should have been central to my core and yeah. so my research w- is trying to Look at how we can see ourselves as Nigerians, how we can see ourselves as black even while we're in Nigeria. How, so for instance, um, how, how can we identify 
processes of race and racialization in Nigeria. And, uh, for example, I, I, I give an example of a Nigerian, child of a Nigerian immigrant. Uh, she, he, he went back to Nigeria for school um, because he was being uh, bad, you know, how they, they take the Nigerian <laughs> children back to school. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but in house, maybe. <laughs> and so he was so excited to learn Igbo. He was like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to learn Igbo. I'm in Nigeria. This is great. He goes yeah. to school and... He comes to find out that he, he said the, 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 the headmaster was like, if you speak Igbo outside of Igbo class, we're gonna, you're going to get beat, and also you have to oh, pay a vernacular fine. thing, right? Yes. <laughs> so you have yeah. to get beat, and you're paying a fine for speaking your, your own native tongue. Um, be, yeah. uh, of course, we understand because, it's, you know, English is the predominant uh, language, and it's, it's great for mobility and access. Yeah. And but what I would, what I, I use that example to show how uh, many times blackness is beaten. So our language, the things that are essential to our nativity, our indigeneity, is beaten, yeah. and that's those are processes of racialization. Those mm-hmm. are processes in Nigeria in which we are told not to um, acknowledge our own native uh, tongues, or or mm-hmm. and so those are. So that's like one example I, I use to like show um, these racialized processes that are occurring um, with with my, my the those who are in my project. That's 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 a as I always thought about it. That's a very good point you made, and I want to think that for example, you know that ban on your native language, especially when it's outside of language class, mm-hmm. that could also be like a carryover effect, or if you want to say like the remnant effect of colonization, oh, where English had to be the spoken language. And it, re- it really isn't any different from, you know, if you think about the cotton fields where when they brought all the Africans here, slaves, they all spoke different languages depending on what part of Africa they were from. And mm-hmm. so they had to be subdued in a way and then you had to speak, you know, English as a way. That. But mm-hmm. I never really considered it that way. Thanks for um, highlighting that. You're so um, what's next? Like on your research, but like, what is the future for Miss Chingwei? Um, so I am working on a chapter, um, okay. actually about the narrative of what I, I kind of introduced about the Nigerian Biafra War, and I'm particularly interested in how um, Nigerian immigrants and children of immigrants remember. So they're put, they are identified as like the post-war or even the post-post-war generation, and so. I, I'm, I want to know how educational institutions and families share war narratives um, and how those narratives in itself are a racialized process of erasure, of not remembering, like, what is, what is it about, why is it that Nigeria doesn't want us to remember? So things like that, asking those questions. And then yeah. hopefully apply for a job next year, <laughs> or this year, actually. Oh, Yeah. How much longer do you have on your fellowship? A year or so? Um, yeah, so I finish uh, May, May or June? May 2019. Okay, okay. Well, um, all the very best. Would you like to end up in academia or um, go off on your own, be a best-selling author? What would you like to do? <laughs> oh, <laughs> I want to do academia, definitely. I want to, okay. I'm definitely interested Welcome in Welcome aboard. Welcome aboard. Right. <laughs> you gotta tell me all the, all the little uh, advices and wisdoms that you can share. When you, when you get to that river, we'll cross it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
it's it's it really looks good. You know how they say the grass is green on the other side? Yeah. And usually I always spot that and say it's pyro zero algae. It actually really looks great from here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, whenever you're ready, of course you can always have a conversation about that. So um, I think now we can we can actually move on to the modified section of the podcast and then we'll come back with some um final thoughts. So welcome back to me, to the Mardi Gras section of the podcast. I'm just curious, how do you practice self-love or another way of asking that, what's your hobby? Like, how do you, like, you know, give back to yourself? My biggest hobby is running, to be honest. I, I mean, for my health, but I actually enjoy running outside. Like, I get mad when it's raining or snowing or just super, super cloudy and cold. Yeah. I enjoy being outside. I I see it as a form of worship, like I'm like running, I'm, sometimes I'm listening to worship music or Afro beats or all types of music, yeah. Um, yeah. and yeah, so I, I literally get life out of running, um, and then hanging out with friends, I, I, would do, I do work throughout the day, and then in the evening mm-hmm. I, tr- I try to do something with a friend, because I can't do work all the time, <laughs> um, so that's another thing, um, but yeah, those are the two things. Nice, nice running. I've heard about the runner's high, like the whole, um, I've never experienced it because I don't run. If you see me running, just call the cops, something going on. <laughs> I think, I don't think I'm built for running because I, I want to, I think my feet are so flat. Mm. And when I do run, they hurt me. Maybe because I'm not wearing the right shoes. I but I do like running on the on the treadmill. But as far as like on hard surfaces and like running a trail, uh, no, I haven't built all myself to that level yet. Oh, you can get there. I believe in you. Thank you. Oh. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, well, a hard question I like to ask you is this. Um, so I know your line of work, you, you're you all about, um, you know, equality and um, ending oppression. And if I want to say social justice, would that be the right word to say? Yeah, you can say that. That works. Okay. All right. So um, here's my question. And it's just me trying to think of the other side of this, you know, whole spectrum. Obi, I know you are a Christian as well. So for some Christians who might be sitting on the fence about social justice and activism, what would you say to them? And here's a, a deeper context to that. So an advantage of, you know, if you were to look at it from a Christian point of view, why should you be a social justice warrior is, of course, you know, Christians should be um, social justice warriors because if you look at the Bible, Jesus is all about taking care of the poor, and um, promoting equality, like, you know, think about the woman that was supposed to be stoned to death, and he kind of spoke up for her in a way. But it's true that, you know, Jesus is so many people for the poor, for the widowed, for the orphan, and for the foreigners. And that's, you know, very central in, in the Bible. And um, But if you look at the, the, the other side of it, especially mainstream social justice warriors, is there's just that overall sentiment of rejecting the concept of sin, and basically they believe that by nature human beings are good and definitely if there's evil or injustice it's rather due to societal issues rather than the individual that has you know committed the evil act mm-hmm. so there's so much um and there's also a strong sentiment that you know power structures and policies are the ones that cause oppression mm-hmm. and 
to me it seems as if you are, were absorbing the criminal of their crimes and just in a way regarding them as victims. But whereas the Bible always speaks about the evil in man's heart and how sins, like how our sins are a result of a fallen relationship with Christ. So for Christians that are, you know, really sitting in the middle or sitting on the fence regarding being more active and, you know, promoting equality, what would you say to them given that you are, you know, in, yeah, like in that intersection of social justice and also as a Christian? Did that question make sense? I felt like I went through it wrong. It does. I love it. Amazing question that I'm going to have to process to see. Take your time. Sorry. I, I, think I, was, I just thought about it now to ask you, sir. No. You're on the talking point. Yeah? This is important. This is a, a very important issue. And it's something that I I had to struggle with a lot because I don't feel like I, I'm not, I don't want to downplay Christianity in any way, but the social justice aspect of me, what came from my love of people, which came from my love of Christ. But I can't say it came from my, the way, like, church culture. Um, it wasn't until I got to college and I started to see injustice, injustices um, in the criminal justice system. And then I, I, I got into my Ph.D. and started to read even more about, you know, structural injustice. That, that fire really started to burn. Um, but it, it was all rooted in my love of Christ and the love of people. And... And so, for me, when it comes to, um, I think identifying structures is important because many times we leave it to the individual. It's the individual's issue, and we don't see this as a um, structural issue. Like, for instance, when we look at poverty, it's like, oh, too bad that person's lazy or that person is this. And so, when we leave it to the individual, we don't understand how, uh, structural poverty is, and so mm -hmm. that the structural aspect is important and necessary, and something that is usually ignored. And so that's why we're probably seeing that called out more. Um, the individual, and this is something I talk about just to myself, to my friends. It's like we are part of all of this. Like we yeah. we play a part in in resisting and perpetuating um, different. Uh, sins, if we call it, um, or just injustices, injustices of the world. So we cannot remove ourselves from the issue as in, you know, uh, we, we didn't cause the issue, but we also have to understand there are people who have more power to make the change happen. And so the way in which we should approach it is acknowledging our own flaws, but also acknowledging that we, we have to, um, also acknowledge that there are people with greater power that can make this change happen. And I'm not, I'm not I mean, and people have different approaches. They, people want to stay within the community and not address yeah. the broader structure. So I, I don't want to create some, this is the way you're supposed to do it, but I think both can occur. I think you can look at the individual, but also put that individual within a wider structure to see how it all plays out. I think that's a very fair response to give because I think that way as well. Like, you know, um, of course, there's inequality as far as, so as a health researcher, right, I know that in, when you study a lot of health disparities, you know, some populations, they don't have access, for example, to adequate care that other people have access to. And, you know, as a result, they might end up not taking good care of their health. So you're not just looking at individual characteristics. You're also looking at the community level. 
if yeah. there's no nurse to like for example a specialist you might not really have that adequate care to take care of your diseases so in this case you're looking at the interaction between individual characteristics and also you know community level characteristics so in the same vein I think we we can't always say well if anybody's not doing well in life then it has to be the society we need to also consider individual characteristics when necessary and um, also think about the bigger picture like what policies can be done to ease the sufferings of those that are those that can that can be helped. And I think this is what is really missing in most social justice, you know, platforms that I've seen. And so it's really nice hearing you say that because when we when I had this th- thought initially, I was like, I don't know if I should ask that because it seems a little bit controversial. But I'm like, you know, I'm just gonna go ahead and ask. Like, but thanks for as- answering that question. I thought it was a very good response you gave. And I also want to acknowledge that Jesus did a lot of uh, systemic and structural change as well. And so. They they both go hand in hand. Um, if, if does that make sense? Like Jesus, I, I, I did, he did. like when he flipped the table at the temple, he did that way before it became a popular thing on Real Housewives of Atlanta. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> or even like healing on the Sabbath. Sabbath was a law, you know, the law. Oh, yeah. Of, yeah. He changed yeah. in the sense of like the legalism of it, and you know, just, just different things that he like challenged and of course fulfilled in the end. And so, yeah. it's like, these are structural things that he was doing as well. I think true Christians can definitely agree with that. That, you know, he wasn't about religion. He wasn't about legalism. He was more about connecting man to God. Not what man could do to get to God, you know? Mm. Yep. Yeah. Good, good, good. Um, so, any, um, any final thoughts? We've talked a lot about so many things. So, you've told us about your research and how so much, how passionate you are about Nigeria and also some of the research it's currently doing that can inform a lot of changes back home. And this is one of the reasons why this podcast was started, just to find ways to tell our stories, because I'm sure not many people have an idea of the kind of research that is going on. So I also wanted to give, you know, audience to what you're doing, because I think it's also very important for us to, you know, hear our stories and keep telling our stories. So that said, are there any final thoughts you have or um, things you'd like to, you know, contribute I think it's the same thing I'm saying. Basically, do you have any final thoughts? <laughs> I think that you have an amazing platform, and I'm grateful that you went for it and went for the, and and seeing it come to light and seeing just people coming together and being giving us a platform to share our stories is is so important. And I, as a Black Nigerian woman, I I just I'm just grateful for just who you are and what you're doing and. Oh. Um, here and also just as an academic and as a person. Um, thank you. But, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And, and I also like to thank you because if it was just me by my by myself talking about myself all the time, I probably would have packed up after the second episode. But I need. I like that. You know, for almost everyone that I've reached out to, even people that I didn't know from the beginning, they've been very, very, you know, positive, and the responses have been very over. They've been overwhelmingly overwhelmingly encouraging and I wouldn't have been able to do that without you guys you know jumping on board because you can have a vision if people don't buy into it especially a platform that requires voices like different voices to be heard yeah I don't want to talk about myself all the time I don't want to you know 
it's not much to me to you know talk about all the time and so I want to have like varied you know opinions and just people you know talking about their stories and finding ways to connect with each other because I'm sure there's somebody out there that's probably doing something similar to what you're doing or they're probably curious about that line of research and they'd like to reach out to you so it's also mm-hmm. another way to give something back to you thank you thank you and how often do you go back to Nigeria to, I mean do you go back often to visit yeah I mean last time I've been was 2016 um, but I, I want to go more. I want to make a Nigeria of my own rather than yeah. that of my parents. So I'm trying to build what is Nigeria to me. So I think yeah. this is the time as I get older that I can do that. Yeah, go do your Eat, Pray, Love expedition, Chinwe version. Yes. yes. <laughs> See Nigeria through your own eyes, not what your parents must have told you about it. Exactly. Good, good, good. Well, so today I've had the pleasure of interviewing Ms. Chinwe Origi, who is a scholar in every sense of the word. She's very passionate about Nigeria. And we've talked about, you know, race, race relations, and we also talked about her future research and just what she's currently doing. So that concludes the end of this podcast session. This has been the More Civil Podcast. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed today's content, Please don't forget to share this with people that you know might be interested. And um, don't forget to also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. And um, you can also check out www.mosible.com, the website. All right, Jimmy, that was it. (laughs) Yay, we did it. We did it. Thank you so, so much. I'm really, really, you know, um, I'm glad you, you came on board with this. Yes, of course. Of course. And it's every Thursday that it, it release it or how does that work? Yeah, every Thursday I release a new episode.